Community Alliance with Family Farmers presents the Farmer's Beat podcast. That's B-E-E-T. Hi, my name is Grace Perry. I work at Community Alliance with Family Farmers, also known as CAF. I am the host of these episodes where we hear directly from small family farmers throughout California, getting the real information and the stories behind the food we grow and eat. In this series, we pay particular attention to the innovative work small-scale farmers are doing to keep their food safe to eat and share techniques farmer to farmer. In this episode, we talk to Danny Karp about conservation, agriculture, and food safety. Danny is an assistant professor at UC Davis. I'm Danny Karp. I am an assistant professor here at UC Davis in the Department of Wildlife, Fish, and Conservation Biology. And I broadly work on trying to find strategies for harmonizing conservation and food production, looking at issues surrounding pest regulation, food safety, and conservation on field. Danny started working on food safety issues nearly a decade ago, influenced by an E. coli outbreak that occurred in 2006 and sickened 205 people, causing three deaths. The outbreak, which was investigated by the FDA, was linked to fresh spinach and traced back to a specific farm and a handful of possible contamination sources. Yeah, so I started first working on food safety issues nearly a decade ago, um, all in the context surrounding tensions between conservation and food safety that arose after that classic 2006 outbreak traced back to the central coast of California. There had been a lot of pressure, there still is a lot of pressure on growers to remove habitat around their farm fields for fear that it could be bringing wildlife and thus foodborne diseases onto their fields. Any type of natural, semi-natural habitat on the borders of farm fields is often getting removed for fear of food safety. So that could be at a small scale, individual hedgerows that were planted might be pulled out, and I've heard lots of documentation of that. It could be at a larger scale, so lots of the riparian habitat along the Salinas River was removed. There was one estimate to suggest that about 13% of the remaining riparian habitat, and there wasn't that much remaining, was removed in just the first few years after after that 2006 outbreak. So it's a variety of different things from really small grassy strips all the way up to you know patches of riparian vegetation. And so ever since about a decade ago when I started entering this space, I've been really interested in exploring what the kind of scientific basis is for habitat removal and its interplay with food safety, as well as what the role of different kinds of wildlife are in bringing diseases onto farm field. And specifically, I work a lot on birds for that. Danny's first big research project studied whether habitat removal affected the likelihood that pathogens like E. coli 0157H7 or Salmonella would be found on a farm. So the first kind of main study that we did was kind of a data project where we were working with a really large uh, corporation and getting access to a bunch of pathogen tests that they had, hundreds of thousands of them in leafy greens. And then we also had some tests of uh, generic E. coli in water. And so the first thing that we did was sort of analyze those big data sets and ask questions around whether removing habitat, how that sort of affected um, the likelihood that a sample would test positive for pathogens. We found a couple really interesting things. The first was we looked to see what 
the landscape was surrounding the farm. And we found no evidence that farms that were located near riparian habitats or other types of natural habitats actually had a higher incidence of enterohemorrhagic E. coli or salmonella in leafy greens. We did find that there were higher rates of pathogens on farms next to rangeland, but that's not super surprising. Lots of studies have found that we know cattle are a primary reservoir for E. coli. What's even cooler about that data set, though, is it stretches over time. So we could look to see which were the farms that were actually removing habitat and what happened to foodborne pathogens on those farms. And we found that, if anything, the farmers that removed more habitat actually experienced an increase in foodborne pathogens over time, not a decline, which might have been surprising for those people who were removing habitat, hoping that it would have provided them benefits. And there are a variety of different reasons why that could be. One reason could be that the habitat itself actually acts as a filter and filters out the foodborne pathogens from runoff or other ways from getting it onto the farm. And there's decent evidence, um, especially even in years subsequent, that that does happen. But we also need to think about if it is a role of wildlife, which are the species that are playing a key role in the spread of these pathogens? You're always gonna have birds and rodents on fields. If you're in a big monoculture area, you're gonna have one type of birds and rodents. And if you're in a more diversified farm or a farm that's surrounded by natural habitats, you'll have different kinds of birds. And so the key there is understanding what the relative risks are of these different kinds of animals. And that was the next kind of research domain that we started working on. Next, Danny's research focused on the role of wildlife, particularly birds and their poop and their impact on farm food safety. We now had some evidence that removing habitat around farm fields was not providing the industry with the kind of desired outcomes from food safety perspectives. But what were the role of wildlife? And we were keying in on birds in particular because birds are a real concern for growers. We know that they do carry foodborne pathogens. We also know that they're really hard to keep away from farm fields. They can't be fenced out from a farm field like a pig might be able to be fenced out. So what's going on with these birds? To understand that, we first did a study on strawberries and we had 20 different fields, about 20 fields of differing sizes, some in really diversified landscapes with lots of patches of habitat nearby, some surrounded by other strawberry fields and other um, types of crops. And we would go out and catch birds. So we got a bunch of birds and we were trying to figure out what they were doing on farms. Not only we were trying to figure out what their food safety risks, we were also trying to figure out if they were eating strawberries or eating the pests that eat the strawberries or even eating beneficial insects like ladybugs or other types of pest control providers. So we would catch all these birds, we would put them in little cloth bags and we would wait for them to poop. And they would freak out when they got in their cloth bags and almost always poop right immediately. And that was our gold data. Way too much of my career has been spent collecting bird poop. Anyways, we would collect this bird poop. We could look to see what we would find in terms of what they were eating. We could try to figure out what pathogens, if any, were in those feces. And then we would know a little bit more about the role of these birds on farms. So from that study, we found really interestingly that it looked like birds were actually less likely to carry foodborne pathogens. In this case, the one that was common enough for us to do analysis was Campylobacter. 
and we found they were less likely to carry Campylobacter on the farms that had more habitat surrounding them. So again, contrary to that idea of habitat removal being a good thing. From there, we started thinking, all right, maybe we want to generalize this a little bit. So we got together our data set with a couple other data sets from other researchers that have been working across the Western United States. And we made one mega data set of a bunch of bird surveys across farms, as well as bird feces collected and tested for pathogens. And we had, you know, 10,000 some odd um, different tests that we were looking at and trying to figure out who were the key players here, who were the ones that were carrying pathogens. And we found that the pathogenic E. coli was really, really rare in birds, as was salmonella. Salmonella was extremely rare. Birds often do get salmonella, but it often kills them. So seeing a bird flying around on a field and catching it, you're not so likely to have that bird being carrying salmonella because it's often fatal for them. Anyways, great news for growers. Salmonella, E. coli, super rare, less than 0.5% of birds are testing positive. Campylobacter, again, was a little bit more common. I think 8% or so of birds were testing positive for that. Next, Danny's research asked, which are the species we need to worry about? We then looked at all of these different attributes of species to see if we could predict which ones were going to be the most likely to carry these diseases. And we found that the single greatest predictor was whether that species tended to associate with livestock. Would you ever see it on a confined animal feedlot or in rangeland, things like that. And if the answer was yes, then it was much more likely that that bird would have Campylobacter. But for a bird to cause a problem, it can't just test positive for a foodborne illness, right? It needs to also go onto the field and then forage around in the vulnerable produce and then actually poop on it, right? And so we used a bunch of bird surveys to figure out which species were the ones most likely to interact with the produce. And again, it was the livestock-associated birds that were much more likely. Then we tried to figure out which were the ones that were most likely to actually poop on the produce. So once again, working with the bird poop, we collected bird poop from all these fields and sequenced it again, this time trying to figure out who was the species, which was the bird that was actually pooping on the produce. And again, it was these livestock-associated species. This idea that the livestock-associated species are more of a risk then maybe provides us with some insight into why we are seeing this trend of more habitat around being a potentially good thing. On the farms that have more habitat around them, we tend to get more diversity of birds, more kinds of birds, but they aren't so much the livestock-associated ones, whereas in the farms that are in these more monoculture landscapes or the ones that are adjacent to rangeland, we often get these livestock-associated species, species that form big flocks, which are known to be risky from a food safety perspective. And so maybe it has to do with the changing composition of which species are where, and that's explaining why we're seeing the kind of things we're seeing with respect to habitat removal. Danny provides some ideas for how farmers can manage risks of these livestock-associated birds entering their fields. If you know that you have these livestock-associated species, these big flocks of starlings and blackbirds and things moving onto your farm field, I think that is something to consider from a food safety perspective. And you'd want to be thinking a lot about deterrence. And there are a number of bird deterrents of, of varying efficacies that any farmer would know. People use sound cannons or uh, sparklers or streamers or all those things. Some of them kind of work. The most effective way, of course, is to net off your produce. That's also super expensive. Lots of different ideas people have put out to manage birds, even falconry. Again, that might work. 
often quite expensive. So you need to be thinking about managing those risks if you are near rangeland, near livestock operations, and seeing these flocks of birds coming on. But on the other hand, maybe you're not in that situation, and in that case, having birds around is not necessarily a bad thing. A big component of Danny's research involves developing innovative methods for harmonizing food production and conservation, which has led to some encouraging findings related to food safety. So what's more encouraging, though, from a both a conservation and from a food safety perspective is that, on the other hand, we found that the insect-eating birds are relatively low risk from a food safety perspective. And that's really nice because we know that growers can benefit a lot from birds coming onto their farms and eating insect pests. If you have the opportunity to put habitat around your farm fields and maybe you're not near rangeland and are worrying about those birds of potential concern from a food safety perspective, then maybe you recruit some of these insect eating birds onto your farm by keeping that habitat around. You can also more actively manage those birds by putting out nest boxes. Birds like bluebirds and tree swallows are big insect eaters, and we know they provide benefits to farmers by eating insect pests, and we know that they're relatively lower food safety risks. One important caveat, though, for those boxes is that if the hole is too big, they can get invaded by starlings, which are risky. So one thing that I often will say to growers is that if you put up these boxes, it, it might be a good idea to every once in a while go check them out, make sure you don't have invasive starlings in there, and if you do, eject those starlings out of the box. They're invasive and not covered any under any Migratory Bird Treaty Act or things like that. So in summary, though, there's, there's a nice win-win, I think, both for conservation and for food safety, and potentially even for the grower by providing some of these pest control benefits from these birds. So we've been talking a lot about birds on farms in the context of food safety, but we know that they affect farm production in a variety of ways. And one of the other things that I'm really interested in is trying to explore what the net outcome of having birds on your farm is for a farmer. And so one of the ways that we do this is we put cages around plants to keep the birds off, and then we see what happens to crop yields. We've done this in strawberries, done this in coffee, done this in a variety of different systems. And with the strawberries, it's interesting. You would keep the birds away from the strawberries, and we knew that those birds often will like to eat the strawberries, but they'll also eat pests. We found that the overall outcome of birds foraging on a strawberry farm is slightly negative. So they're doing a little bit more harm to production than good. But what's really key again is that management matters. And so if you were on a farm that had a lot of habitat around you, those net negative impacts were really, really minor, really mitigated, not so much a negative impact of birds whatsoever. However, as you transition to the more monoculture farms that didn't have habitat around, we shift that community of birds. And not only does that potentially increase the food safety risk, those birds often loved to eat those strawberries. And so we would see higher rates of strawberry eating. And as a result, the net impact on production was actually a lot worse on those farms from a bird perspective. So that tells us again that we need to think about which species are present in which types of environments and what their multiple kind of roles on the farm are when we're thinking about how we manage them. Danny tells us about other related research. 
so of course our research group isn't the only ones that are interested in the effects of biodiversity and vegetation management on farm fields and the effects on food safety. There have been some other studies um, that are really interesting with respect to this kind of work. There was one study in the Central Valley of California looking at hedgerows, trying to see what the role of hedgerows was and whether they were exporting rodents onto farm field and whether those rodents were carrying food safety risks. And they found something kind of similar to us. They found that while there might be lots of rodents that are in those hedgerows, um, the, there was no more likelihood of rodents coming into the farm fields if you had a hedgerow or if you had a kind of bare strip next door. And likewise, there was no extra kind of food safety risk rodents testing positive for pathogens if you had those hedgerows around. So that's one study. There was another study on the East Coast in New York that was looking at a variety of different foodborne diseases, listeria, salmonella, um, and they were finding that buffers around the farm field, vegetated buffers that had grasses or other types of vegetation, were associated with lower food safety risks on that farm as well. And then there was yet another recent study that was more experimental and looking next to a feedlot and then trying to see when you had this, these like cattle around, if you had vegetation between that cattle operation and the field, or if you didn't, what was the impact on pathogens? And again, they found a positive effect of having habitat around. So while of course there's always more work that needs to be done, I would say that sort of across the literature at this point, there's very little to no evidence that having habitat around the farm field is a bad thing from a food safety perspective. And there are some studies that suggest that there might be actually benefits of having habitat around, or maybe a little bit less clear on that, but certainly no evidence that having habitat around is, is a risk at this point. While Danny's research reveals the benefits of wildlife habitat and bird activity on farms, he acknowledges the barriers that growers could encounter when trying to implement some of the beneficial practices. I would say when we're talking about food safety, it often is people that are growing fresh produce. But a common misconception is that a lot of times growers don't have as much power as you might think to be able to choose their food safety practices. They're under unbelievable pressure from their buyers to implement certain practices. And so those buyers sometimes will send out auditors to the farm field and the auditors will say, you know, you have to do this practice or else we won't buy from you. And that's a ton of pressure on the grower. So in many cases, we might find something that the grower agrees is a practice they don't really want to be doing, but they feel that they have to. One really important thing to note is that some of the key rules and regulations farmers have to abide by do not require farmers by any means to remove habitat around the farm field. For example, the Federal Food Safety Modernization Act does not say anything about having to remove habitat around farm fields. The Leafy Greens Marketing Agreement doesn't mandate that either. So this is not coming from that level of regulation. It often comes from um, the buyers sending auditors or the auditors themselves imposing these standards on the growers. So I think in terms of thinking about this practice of habitat removal, integration of biodiversity on farm fields moving forward, it's gonna really have to involve those communities of the auditors and some of the buyers 
the grower shippers, all that whole part of the supply chain. And that's something that, you know, we're working on as scientists beginning to bridge that community, um, also working with NGOs as much as we can to bring those folks into the room and share what we know, and also try to exchange ideas and, and figure out what other studies need to be done to make them more comfortable with the state of knowledge as it is right now. It's totally understandable the place they're operating from. They are risk averse, as we all should be, having a foodborne disease outbreak is, is awful and we don't want to put people's lives at risk. And so trying to understand what the risks are and what the science can tell us, I think, is, is key looking forward. Danny also shares some helpful tips for farmers interested in establishing beneficial bird populations on their farm. Best case scenario in terms of putting up bird boxes would probably be the preceding fall, um, hoping that, you know, they get a little bit established and the boxes are embedded within the farm. And then when the birds um, right around now in, you know, February, March, more March are beginning to come in and, and look for boxes, then they would already be there. That said, you know, if you if you missed your window and you want to throw up some boxes now and see if they're going to be occupied, there's a decent chance they would be. So you could try that as well. And for farmers who grow in areas where there's not a lot of surrounding wildlife habitat. You might try it. And I think, you know, you might be surprised of the kinds of species you can recruit onto your farms. Birds are pretty mobile. And a lot of these species can do fairly well in open environments. So I'm thinking birds like western bluebirds and tree swallows often will be in intensive sort of row crop situations maybe if there's a little bit of habitat nearby. So even if you're a small grower surrounded by big growers, there might be good opportunities for improving the conservation value of your farm. Now, if, there's, if you're so far away from anything that there's literally what we would call no source habitat nearby, um, then maybe you're not gonna see a really big impact. There's a whole theory about this in ecology. It's called the intermediate landscape hypothesis. And it's this idea that you need at least a little bit of habitat nearby for the sources for these some of these birds or other organisms to come onto your farm fields. But if you're in an intermediate situation, you have a little bit, that might be where you would actually do the most good. Because if you're on the other end of the spectrum, I mean, there's so much habitat around you, then your actions on your farm might not matter that much for the wildlife around. You've already, they've already got lots of places to go. So in some cases, you might actually be in this really sweet spot, able to make a really big difference. So the Wildfire Alliance is another NGO that's been working a lot in this space. They have some really ambitious goals for the numbers of boxes that they want around farms. Um, so I think going to their website, they have a lot of testimonials and, and insights, key videos on the role of birds on farms. And so there's a lot of really great information there. Um, and then I think other organizations thinking about how to put up hedgerows around your farm fields um, can be really good talking to, you know, UC Cooperative Extension. Um, other organizations like Hedgerows Unlimited can be a really great one as well. And then some of these practices might even be eligible for NRCS kind of dollars. And so thinking about 
what kind of conservation practices that you could do and maybe get a little bit of compensation back for doing them might be a really great idea. Danny shares how he communicates his research results to farmers and other stakeholders throughout California and what's up next for his research team. Yeah, we try to get our information out to farmers through a variety of different ways. Uh, We've partnered with NGOs like the Wild Farm Alliance to hold a lot of demonstrations and research talks. We'll catch birds on farms throughout California, show people these birds, talk about, you know, food safety issues or tensions, as well as potential benefits or costs that these birds might impose for production. So we do some of that. Um, Also talk a little bit with policymakers. I've talked before the Water Control Board before when they were thinking about instituting new rules regarding riparian buffers. We create as much outreach documentation as we can, developing press releases alongside our uh, papers that we publish, as well as one-page policy brief fact sheets that we can give out to people. So as wide-ranging an approach as we can to get the information out once we find it. So we recently got some funding um, to continue a bunch of this work, again, looking at the role of birds in spreading or not spreading foodborne diseases. And so this, this project is gonna be looking at birds really holistically. So we're trying to understand which are the species that are most likely to carry pathogens. We had that really big data set from before We're going to make it even bigger by catching more birds and supplementing that data set with the species that were a little bit undersampled. Then doing some more work of trying to do those surveys, figuring out which of those species are coming on to farms. But key here will be looking explicitly near the rangeland livestock operations and far from them in multiple seasons of the year. So which birds are coming on to farms in those different contexts and which ones are then pooping on the produce. That's stage two. And then stage three, which is actually the most most exciting and new is asking the question, all right, so if a bird does poop some pathogens on a lettuce head, how long is it gonna survive in that bird poop? We don't really know that. There hasn't been many studies of that at all. So we're gonna be doing some experiments where we're gonna collect poop, we're gonna inoculate it with E. coli, a non-pathogenic form if we're putting it out in the field, but the pathogenic form if we're putting it in the lab, and then we'll put it on lettuce, either in field conditions, lab conditions, and then come back one day later, two days later, three days later, and quantify how long it's surviving. We're gonna do that for a small bird, like Western Bluebird, one that we might want around our farm field eating pests, and maybe larger birds like wild turkeys as well. CAF is a nonprofit organization that has been helping small farmers across California with technical assistance and policy advocacy since 1978. If you're curious about things you learned in this episode, head over to our show notes at calf.org slash farmersbeat. That's B-E-E-T, where we have links, resources, and photographs. Be sure to check out Danny Carp on Twitter at DSCarp and share the episode with your friends. Be sure to check out Danny Carp on Twitter at DSCarp and share this episode with your friends. Also, follow us on Instagram at calf underscore fam farms to stay up to date on when new episodes are released and see pictures from the farms featured in this podcast. This podcast would not exist without funding from the California Specialty Crop Small and Medium Scale Farm Food Safety Technical Assistance Program, made possible by the United States Department of Agriculture. The contents of this podcast are solely the responsibility of CAF and do not necessarily represent the official views of the USDA. 
We thank them for their support of this work and helping real farmers share their food safety tips to other farmers. Are you a farmer interested in being in a future episode or have a question related to this podcast? You can contact us at thefarmersbeat at calf.org. Thank you for listening and join us for the next episode from CAF, sharing farm fresh insights right from the field and giving voice to sustainable agriculture since 1978.